everyone, I'm Amanda Borshell Dunn, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the Times of Israel's weekly podcast. This week, I'm speaking with popular Israeli philosopher Dr. Micha Goodman, whose book, The Wandering Jew, just came out in English. It's a deep dive into the Israeli search for Jewish identity from both the secular and religious sides. He breaks down the differing foundational ideologies, how they connect and divide Israelis, and proposes a middle path. We also discuss the ultra-Orthodox community's loud and proud non-compliance to coronavirus rules and the role of God in Purim. We are neighbors, so while the subjects are weighty, get ready for a few laughs as well. Enjoy. Hi, Micha. Hi, Amanda. Always a pleasure to speak with you. We are here to talk about your new book, The Wandering Jew, as well as other things that will come up along the conversation. So to begin with, I just finished The Wandering Jew. I loved it. I found it exhilarating to read. It's a page turner, which is so somewhat bizarre because it's a book about philosophy and history. So tell us briefly what the book is. The book is not about Israel. The book is about Israeliness. Now, you know, Amanda, how people, not only Jews, but all over the world, when we look at Israel, we look at Israel through the lens of politics. But this is an attempt to look at Israel through the lens of culture, of spirituality, and religion. And Israel is very interesting. It's a very interesting place, Jewishly speaking. Israel is diverse. Israel is uh, bubbling. And we have, and the secular part of Israel is much more diverse than people imagine. The religious part of Israel is much more diverse than people imagine. And my book is trying to dive into the philosophies, the philosoph- not the philosophy, but the philosophies behind secular Israel and the philosophies behind religious Israel. I just loved it. And, you know, I myself am a secular Israeli and I learned so much about myself while I was reading it. And then I have to tell you, I was reading it and I was actually shaking my fist at you so many times. And my kids were like, what's going on with you? And I said, Micha said this. And And then the next chapter, you answered all my questions. It was just just wonderful. So basically you describe three different philosophies in each of the sections. So break it down for us. What are the secular philosophies? Okay, so there is in Israel secular orthodoxy. Like there is a sense among many secular Israelis that there is one right way. There is the one way to be secular in very broad strokes. That's that when what they imagine is a angry version of secularism, a secularism that's somehow very angry at Jewish tradition and that manages its anger through disconnecting itself from Jewish tradition. And it thinks that's the authentic way of being secular. But the interesting thing is when you read the writings, the books, the ideas of some of the founding fathers of Israeli secularism, they had a completely different vision for secularism. For example, Echad Am, which is one of the heroes of this book. And, and I have to say, now my new hero, for sure. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Maybe, maybe you'll be, you have a big poster of him in your yes, right? Echadi. Echadi, oh, <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so, so Am, which is that the founding father of Israeli secularism, he thought that being secular does not mean that you're liberated from tradition. It means that you have a liberated approach towards tradition. Here's how I imagine it. Michal Yosef Berdichevsky, he is the philosopher of angry secularism. Echad Am is the philosopher of a different brand of secularism. And this is how I understand their disagreements. 
And this disagreement took place in the beginning of the 20th century between these two giants and had two different visions for what secularism is about. By the way, we're used to that, we're very used to the idea that there are disagreements between religious thinkers, right? Hasidim, Mitnagdim, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews. But it's hard, but it's, but it's sometimes it's hard to wrap our head, be, our head behind the idea that there's a disagreement among secular Israelis. What is secularism about? Not as what not what is religion about? Because people think, oh, secularism is a rejection of religion. No, secularism is an interesting, exciting philosophy. And just like their disagreements within between religious people, they're dis about how to be religious, their disagreements between secular philosophers about how to be secular. This brings us back to the difference between Echadam. And I love that you call him Echadi. And <laughs> and and Berdichevsky. And Echadam says, I think this is what he's saying. We have to imagine our relationship with our past, with our tradition, as a relationship like any other relationship. Now, many of us are trapped in unhealthy relationships. What is an unhealthy relationship? It's where there's too much power involved. If you're connected to someone that's trying to constantly control you, that's an unhealthy relationship. So Echadam says, many of us are connected to Judaism and they're always controlled by Judaism and they're controlled by our past. And in that sense, they're controlled, they're slaves of the past. They're constantly under the control of the tyranny of the past. What do you do about that? So when you're trapped in a bad situation and a bad relationship with someone that's always trying to control you, you have two options. Option number one, to end the relationship. That's the Berdichevsky option. That's the angry secular option. My, the only way to escape the tyranny of tradition is to disconnect yourself from tradition, to end that dysfunctional relationship. Echad Am offers the harder path. Instead of ending the relationship, let's heal the relationship. Let's have a healthier relationship with Judaism. What does that mean? It means to take our tradition, strip it from its power, from power, from control, and develop a relationship based on inspiration and not on authority. How would that look like? That would look like it's a secular Israelism where Israelis feel intimately connected to the past, to our tradition, but they're not controlled by our past. They're not controlled by our tradition. Connected, but not controlled. That's the Yechad model. And it's an alternative model to the angry secular model. But Yechad argues it's not less secular, but it's a secularism that embraces Judaism and not controlled by Judaism. And it's a different form of liberation. It's having a liberated relationship with tradition, not being liberated from tradition. Okay, brilliant. And there is a third path as well, which I, when you wrote who gave this third path, I was just so astounded because I know of Bialik as this uh, children's author, as this poet who did the teeter-totter song, oh. which in a way kind of ties into his philosophy. Yes. Yeah, so, so Bialik takes us one step forward. Bialik is a disciple of Echadam. He says, Echadam was my prophet. That's what he says. And he also says that every time Echadam wrote an article, wrote a piece, he felt like he's expressing a part of his soul. So Bialik is a disciple of Echadam and like a great disciple. He doesn't only repeat his teacher, he expands the philosophy of his own teacher. So the expansion of the way Bialik expands Echadam is the following is, is the following idea. He says, being secular 
Israeli, being a secular Jew, doesn't only mean that you're connected to tradition but not controlled by it. It also means that in some way you are listening to, I'll call it this way, the ancient will of our past. Let me try to explain this. When I read Maimonides, the guy for the perplexed, I could be inspired by the text. When I read the Bible, I could be inspired by the Bible. But the Bible also wants something from me. It's not only trying to inspire me, it's also demanding something from me. Bialik said, let's listen to those demands. Rabbi Akiva wants something from us. Rabbi Shmael wants something from us. Beit Hidel, Rambam wants something from us. The prophet Isaiah wants something from us. Now let's think about the prophet Isaiah. He wants us to build a society founded on justice. Bialik says, let's, let's listen to him. Listening to him doesn't mean obeying him. Listening to the past means you're having a healthy relationship to the, with the past, which means that somehow, listen, and when you really listen to someone, they rub off on you and they change your behavior, which takes Bialik to the following oxymoron. We have to develop secular halacha, which means, and somehow our Jewish tradition should shape our actions, halacha, our actions. It's not just our minds, it's also our deeds, Bialik. It's a change our behavior. You know why? Because Amanda, if me, me and you are really connecting now, we'll behave differently than that for the next few hours. Because when you bump into someone and you listen to someone, that someone changes you. So if you want to have a real relationship with our tradition, that tradition has to rub off on you and to be expressed through deeds. So Bialik said, we don't have to. So Bialik says, don't misunderstand me, says Bialik. I'm not speaking about obeying old school Shulchan Aruch, meaning the classic canon of Jewish law. But it does mean that secular Israelis are inspired by Judaism should create a contemporary secular version of halacha. And that is a powerful challenge. Many people say it's an oxymoron. Secular halacha? Being secular means you're not controlled by authority. Halacha means there is some kind of authority, but that's not what Bialik means. He's saying that we need to have Judaism shape our deeds, but we will decide how Judaism will shape our deeds. That's what he calls secular halacha. So you have three models, right? Belditevsky, we're disconnected from tradition. Echadaam, we're inspired by tradition. Bialik, we're changed by tradition. And we create, it changes not only our thoughts, but also our deeds. And that's where he comes up with the oxymoron of secular halacha. Okay, so interesting. You know, as a, as I said, I'm a secular Israeli and I can see all of these models in front of me just in my husband's family, my husband's Israeli family. But the model of Bialik, I find the most difficult to uh, identify in terms of practical behaviors today. I actually observe this almost the past few years, almost daily. In my, I teach in Beit Prat, which is like a yeshiva for young adults after the military. And I would say 60% of participants are secular, about 40% are religious. But if you ask them, they kind of feel post-denominational. Don't define On the me. spectrum. On the spectrum, <laughs> <Yes>. right. <laughs> and many of them, many secular Israelis, they're not religious. They don't feel controlled by halacha but they're inspired by Jewish tradition in a way that they want to shape their Shabbat differently. One of my graduates calls it, we're not Shomrei Shabbat. 
we are Meyachdei Shabbat. <laughs> We're not observing Shab- Shabbat, you know, all the details and all the laws. But we do want to make Shabbat different, unique. Meyachdei Shabbat. You know my thing with technology, Amanda, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Spoiler, so, last chapter of the book as well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So some of them are saying, you know what? On Shabbats, this is a secular halacha. We drive on Shabbat. We use electricity on Shabbat. But we shut down our smartphones on Shabbat. Now that is not halachic, but it is tradition changing your behavior its tradition is saying, make Shabbat different, make Shabbat special. It's also saying in the, in the Torah, it says that the meaning of Shabbat is that your mind, that you're present where you are. Well, today, in order to make your mind present where you are, we have to turn off this machine that constantly distracts us and puts our minds in different places and other places than where we already are. So I would say, yes, that's a good example of secular halacha. It's not the Shulchan Aruch, it's not the canon, but it is an attempt of Israelis to do something very powerful, to let their relationship with our past heal their relationship with their present. Because if we have a day without technology, you're letting the past, the idea of Shabbat, shape your Shabbat, and as a result, heal your relationship with the present moment, with the people that are with you. And I think that's the best of what we call secular halacha, when a healthy relationship with our tradition helps you heal your relationships you have in the present. Okay, fair enough. I would submit that most secular Israelis have a way of making Shabbat special, be it Friday night dinners. Yep. And in general, of course, as you note in the book as well, after I shook my fist at you, <laughs> the calendar in Israel is the Jewish calendar and we celebrate the Jewish holidays as a matter of course. We don't have to fight for them like we do in the diaspora. Almost every secular Israeli Jew does do a Passover Seder and knows what it is for as well, which is worth noting. And yet you write in there that uh, secularism is in danger because of ignorance. Whereas every single kindergarten teaches every single Israeli Mm. Jewish child about all the holidays, all the holidays that are so minor and not even acknowledged in most of American Jewry, shall we say, every single Israeli Jew knows about them. So you're saying I'm wrong? <laughs> I'm saying you might be um, yes. misguided. <laughs> I think when we compare the problems that Orthodox religious Israelis have and the problems that secular Israelis have, we just compare them. So I think I would say the original sin of religious Israelis, and this is a generalization, it's not true about all religious Israelis, not at all. But the original sin of religious Israelis is the sin of dogmatism. And the original sin of secular Israelis is ignorance. In the sense, and I, and, I, and I hear what you're saying, Amanda, but still you could be a graduate of the secular school system and not to know what the Talmud is, what a page of Talmud looks like. Maybe their situation is a lot better than other Jews in the world, right? Okay, but I'm comparing I mean, them. For the matriculation right. exams, you're, you're <laughs> right. tested on Bible. That's, in Israel. It's true, it's true. And, and yet there is, there is a, it's hard not to be bumped into, a, to, if you compare religious Israelis and secular Israelis, so many times you will realize that religious Israelis are very dogmatic, not always, and compared at least, secular Israelis are very ignorant, and sometimes even proud of their ignorance. 
and feel like it's a it's somehow a badge of honor. Well, that's the rebellious school that's of thought, right. exactly. Because they're so angry at tradition, so yeah. they're proud that they don't right. know anything about it. As they eat the shrimps with cheese. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, and um, and I think the a vision that this book presents for Israel and for Israeliness is something that I see happening almost every day. And that is dogmatism of religious Israelis is being cracked. Okay, first of all, before you get to that, all let's right. break down the three philosophies of religious Israel Zionism oh, okay, that, okay. that well, you reverse. mentioned in the book. Yes. Okay, great. So, um, within what we call religious Zionism, so I find there's a messianic version of religious Zionism. And this is highly inspired by the great work, the great thought of Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. And that is seeing everything that's happening in Israeli history as a fulfillment of a messianic vision. Now, when I say everything, including secularism. Right. I love that part of it, that secular Israelis, uh, Zionists are the redemption that's right. of Israel. It's- so he has this whole reading why, why the rejection of religion is a fulfillment of the great vision of religion. So that's like one brand. It's a, it's a philosophy of history. It's a lens that messianic religious Zionists are observing history and watching history and interpreting everything as a fulfillment of a divine plan. Even rejection of God is a fulfillment of God's plan. So that's one school of thought, which is has its own biography and has a lot of bumps on the road, by the way. And it's very interesting. I try to put that forward. It's interesting. It's exciting. I personally reject it, but I'm in th- but I'm very intrigued by it. Very interested in it. But it, today, it's inspiring. What the settler movement, shall we say? The settler movement is a mat. Is today the for let's let's put it this way. Many about a hundred years ago, secular Israel was had a messianic temperament. The messianic temperament and the messianic ideology was socialism. Beryl Katzenelson, for example, believed that in Israel we're going to create an exemplary society, a society based on socialism, solidarity, equality, and this society will show the way for the whole world, and that secular messianic moment had its pioneers and the pioneers were the kibbutzim they were the avant-garde of secular messianism uh in the 1970s a new messianic movement was born this time not from secular socialists but from religious zionists and the pioneers the avant of that messianic movement were the settlements so the settlements are for religious for messianic religious zionism are what the kibbutzim used to be for messianic secular socialism. And by the way, my theory is that just like the kibbutz movement didn't work because messianic ideas have a tendency to collapse, also the settlement movement is not as exciting today for most of religious Zionists. And I'm not saying that it's like a complete parallel to the kibbutz movement, but we're living in a world where great ideas, great ideologies are less charismatic. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Second philosophy is... um, um, You wrote the book. (laughs) (laughs) What does it say there? (laughs) Okay, so it's what I call... The um, Sephardi Mizrahi 
No, that's the third. It's non-diasporic Judaism. I'm going to call, I'm I'm going to say the non-diasporic Judaism as the third one, okay? Okay, I'm changing the order. All right. (laughs) I'm re-editing the book as we're talking. So, and it's interesting. There is something within, with that, the Jews that came from Muslim countries, from Arab-speaking countries, and they brought with them a different attitude towards Judaism. And it's a Judaism that is much more, I would say, connected to reality and doesn't, and I would say it's less judgmental Judaism. Now, this has everything to do with the process that European Jews went through. And I want to pause here and, and say something. I assume that many of our listeners are in North America, right? Correct. So here's something that they have to know. Israeli Judaism is very different than North American Judaism, also because of the following reason. American Judaism is primarily Ashkenazi Judaism, right? I think it's 85% Ashkenazi, right? Or maybe 90% Ashkenazi. In your book, you said it was 90. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that means like 10% Sephardi. In Israel, it's 50-50. So that creates different Judaisms because Israel is really a multicultural Judaism, multi-ethnic Judaism. In America, it's Ashkenazi Judaism. I'll give you an example. When Americans imagine their great-grandfather, he always speaks Yiddish. In Israel, you can't imagine that because for 50% of Israeli, their grandparents and grand, their, their, their grandpa and grandma spoke Arabic for 50%. In America, when people speak about Kanedalach, they speak about, about Jewish food. Bagels, locks, all of For that. Israelis, that's Ashkenazi food. It's not Jewish food. You can't see what's Jewish. Oh, it's Ashkenazi. So true. Yes. Like you go to a Shabbat table in Israel, it's very, very mixed plates. Very mixed. You can have Moroccan fish and you can have a, a, a Hungarian schnitzel and you can have like a, a Mediterranean, like hummus Mediterranean. It's very, very diverse because Israel is ve- Israeli Judaism is very diverse ethnically. And that has a massive impact on religion in Israel. And let me try to explain this. There was a process that happened, and this is explained by Yaakov Katz, one of the greatest scholars studying this issue in, in, uh, that happened in Europe in the 19th century, and it's the following process. Rabbis, very traditional rabbis, had a panic attack when modernity appeared. Modernity was threatened to, was threatening, and it was about, that's how they felt, to destroy Judaism, and for good reasons. Modern science modern politics, modern values, modern heroes. Like you start admiring new kinds of people. All this together is an earthquake that could tear down the building of the identity of Jews. So the impulse of European rabbis, many of them, was to protect Judaism by freezing Judaism and closing Judaism. You freeze, what do you do? What do you achieve by freezing Judaism? That's how you know Judaism will be swept away with the spirit of change that comes with modernity. And you close Judaism, so it won't be exposed to modernity. And by freezing it and closing it, you're guarding it and protecting it. So orthodoxy and ultra-orthodoxy is a reaction to modernity. Angry secularism is a reaction to Orthodoxy, like you're, you're, you're over-controlling and you're over-strict. Oh, all this process didn't happen in Muslim countries. Modernity didn't appear in such a powerful way. It was much more gradual. 
As a result, they didn't have a panic attack, creating very strict orthodoxy. As a result, they didn't have a reaction to that, very angry secularism. So on the one hand, you want a very closed-minded orthodoxy among the Sephardi Jews. And on the other hand, they didn't develop angry secularism. They didn't develop that, all these reactions and, and, and contra-reactions. It was Judaism that's much less judgmental, a little bit more loose and more flexible. And they come to Israel. And the tragedy is that when they come to Israel in the 1950s, the European Jews that were here, either very ideological in their secularism or very ideological in their religion, they took the Mizrahi Jews and they tried to put them in one of these two boxes. My feel is, Amanda, that today many Israelis that are searching for an Echad Am type style Judaism, they want to be connected to a tradition but not controlled by it. They are very much influenced by the Mizrahi, by the Sephardi model of Judaism. So it's interesting, in the 1950s, European Israelis tried to change Sephardi Jews. Today, many of them are changing in light of the Sephardi model of Judaism. Really interesting. And in the book, you do mention several artists and singers, and most of them, if I'm going through the list, are actually uh, Sephardi origins. Uh, the Banai uh, family and others that you talk about are now going back to biblical sources for inspiration and things yes. like that. So this is a very, this is something I find very, very interesting. And that is uh, Israeli music is changing and it has to do with blurring the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Jewish and Israeli, I think they're highly connected. Plato was the first to notice. I'm going back to Plato. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, heavy hitter now. <laughs> My monitors, but okay, but Plato. <laughs> yes, no, but actually he had, he had a very, a great observation that he says in his book in the, um, the, the uh, his, uh, the Republic, that the best way to know that a society is changing is to notice that its music is changing. When music music changes, that's a good clue that society might be changing. Now look at Israel. Its music has been changing in the past roughly 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years. 20 years ago, someone would come to Israel and he, would, he or she would notice that you have Jewish music and in a very separate category, you have Israeli music. Israeli music was Shalom Chanoch, you know, Mashiach lo ba, Mashiach gam lo metal, and the Messiah is not coming. That's Israeli music, right? And he's not calling either. And he's not calling. He's not, yeah. Gam lo metal, and Arik Einstein, and beautiful, powerful Israeli Israeli music. And you have Jewish music, which is always like, you know, Yababam. It's very <laughs> Haredi. And it's and they're in different radio stations, right? There's and there's Mizrahi music as well and for the past Mizrahi, 30, 40 Mizrahi years. Mizrahi music. Yeah. And that's a different category. Mizrahi right. different category. And different, station. Right. And it's a different station, right? Music, right. Mediterranean music. It's exactly. not Israeli music, mm -hmm. right? And now something interesting is happening. When Eud Banai sings Shlomo Karlibach, when Beri Sacharov sings the songs of, Rabbi Sh of Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, a middle-aged mystic and philosopher, when Eti Ankri sings psalms, Tehillim, this is all Israeli music. There's nothing more Israeli than Eud Banai. Eud Banai, just so our listeners can understand, he's like Bob Dylan, right? And also from a, a musical dynasty family. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Beri Sacharov is like Bruce Springsteen. Rocker, yeah. Right? These, are, <laughs> these are not weird 
uh, avant-garde. Yeah. Yes, challenging the mainstream. Mm-hmm. This is mainstream. Yeah. We're mentioning mainstream rock stars. Mm-hmm. And they're all doing very Jewish music. So Jewish music is Israeli music. Israeli music is Jewish music. Now when Jew, when when music changes, you realize something deeper in Israel. The distinction between Israeliness and Judaism is blurring. It has everything to do with, with the point you made. There's also a distinction between Ashkenazi and Sfaradi is blurring. So this is something very powerful happening in Israel. So if you want to be optimistic about a process that Israelis are going through, where from Israelis are opening up, and secular Israelis are being more inspired and more connected, and together forming something new, a good clue comes from music, from Israeli music. Okay, we're going to shift uh, gears entirely, and we're going to talk about a very non-optimistic, uh, non-utopian bubble that we've been seeing in the news recently, which is uh, during the coronavirus uh, crisis, we've seen more separation and more isolation between two different distinct societies, the secular slash, I would say, religious Zionist society, mainstream society, and the ultra-Orthodox society. So in your book, you talk about ultra-Orthodoxy a bit, Mm -hmm. not a lot, but how would you explain the mindset of the ultra-Orthodox community recently, which is rejecting vaccination or is rejecting policies of mask wearing and rejecting the Israeli government wholeheartedly, even when lives are in danger? So I think Israeli Haredim, Israeli ultra-Orthodox, our brothers and sisters, are highly misunderstood. And they're misunderstood because it's probably the most diverse society in Israel. But the image we have of Haredi Israel, it's the most homogeneous society in Israel. It's just one large homogeneous group that has one color and no brands and no diversity. But the truth is, the most diverse group in Israel is Haredi Israel. You have the most disagreements among Haredim, the most diversity within Haredim. Actually, secular Israel, which is pride, is diversity, seems many times very homogeneous. And Haredi Israel, which is ideology as being very strict and homogeneous, is actually very heterogeneous. It's one of the interesting paradoxes in Israel. By the way, another paradox, that Haredi Israel that admires ancient ideas and ancient scholars and ancient rabbis is the youngest group in Israel. Secular Israel that's very progressive and modern and sees anything that's new, fresh, as advanced and better is actually the oldest group in Israel when it comes to age. These are very interesting paradoxes we have in Israel. Very much like Europe, uh, birth rates, etc. versus, shall we say, Afghanistan or different parts in the Middle East that are... (laughs) So Haredi Israel that admires antiquity is young. Mm -hmm. Secular Israel that admires modernity is older. These are interesting paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so Haredi Israel is very young, very energetic, and very diverse. Isn't that surprising, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's happening is that this group is splitting roughly into two groups. There's some Haredi sociologists in Israel that made an important observation. We used to divide Haredi Israel into Lithuanian, Mitnagdim, Hasidim, Svaradim, that's an important distinction. But a more important distinction is between modern Haredim and reactionary Haredim. This is something new that's happening the past decade. More and more Haredim want to be a part of modernity, a part of modern Israel, which means many of them want to go to the military. And almost all of them want to participate, be a part of the workforce in Israel. 
And there is another part of Haredi Israel, which I don't know how to say, maybe it's 40%, maybe it's 60%, but it's it's like roughly cut like in the middle, is reacting to that. And they're reacting to that by making Haredi Israel more angry, more close-minded, and rejecting modernity and Israel and everything that comes with Israel with more passion. So here's the optical illusion. When we see angry Haredim protesting on the streets, we like to think they're protesting against modern Israel. No, they're pro- protesting against modern the modernization of parts of Haredi Israel. So who's more allowed? The Haredim that want to become more modern or the Haredim that are reacting towards we're becoming more modern? Obviously, the people who are reacting. So they're more allowed. So we think that they're the real thing because they're more visible. Maybe what's happening is that they are responding to the real thing. So what's very interesting is for the past decade, Haredi Israel is really is, is being divided and the divide is growing. And I think this is very good news. The division, it's not that the optical illusion that Haredi Israel is becoming more extreme, in reality, it's becoming more divided. This is an important observation. It's becoming more divided. Now, I think our role of mainstream Israelis is to take advantage of this divide and take the Haredim that want to become more modern and they want to become more Israeli and invite them in to Israel. The problem is when we don't see the divide, where we see them all as one group, where our emotions towards extreme version of Haredi Israel becomes our emotions to all of Haredi Israel, you know what that does? It blocks the process and the progress that so many Haredim are going through. In Israel, it's very... A sad fact about Israel that it's very easy to despise Haredi Israel. It's very easy, I would say, for many Israelis to hate Haredi Israel. I just want to say the main victims of that hatred are secular Israelis. Because by by hating them, we're rejecting them. And as a result, they're not becoming a part of Israel and we have to carry them on our backs. So we are... It's, it, there's nothing productive that could come out of hatred of Haredim. Haredim are victims of that hatred, but also Dati'im and Chilonim, mainstream Israelis, are victims of that hatred. The only chance that mass, that, that Amos Oz said a few years ago that the last Aliyah to Israel was from Russia. The next Aliyah to Israel will be from Bnei Brak. The last Aliyah was from Russia. The next one will be from Vnevrak. We should encourage that Aliyah, that immigration from the perif- cultural periphery of Israel into mainstream Israel. And by seeing all Haredim as reactionary Haredim, we're blocking that process. So what you're saying is the issue is not really black and white. The issue, <laughs> we're talking about a community that dresses in black and white and the issue is not black and white. <laughs> yeah. Okay, to end with, I would like to discuss my least favorite holiday, which is Purim, which is arguably the secular, alternative secular holiday because God is not mentioned at all in Megillat Esther. That's right. That's right. Actually, Megillat Esther is positioned towards the end of the Bible. If you look at almost all the books towards the end of the Bible, God's not very present there. Job, God's not, God's, it's a very questionable God, the God of Job. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there's no prophecy. There are no miracles. They pray to God. God is mentioned, but he doesn't appear. It doesn't, doesn't reveal, the, the deity doesn't reveal itself. 
So this has to do with a very interesting theory about the entire Bible. Do you want to hear it? No, let's go. Bye. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> okay. So if you look at the, the Bible in very broad strokes, you will notice that in the very beginning of the Bible, God is very present. God creates the world. God is present in the world. The story of Exodus is a story of two things. One, his miracles are very public and very visible. And the revelation is also collective on Sinai. It's a collective revelation and collective miracles. After the, book, after the five books of Moses, they enter Israel and there are no more collective revelations. But there are prophecies. What is prophecy? It's a privatization of revelation. Instead of God revealing himself to the collective on Sinai, now he reveals himself to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, to Amos, right? But no more like grand miracles. There is a sense that there is providence. If you're good, good things will happen to you if you're bad. But we're moving from miracles to providence. And then later on in the Bible, in Esther, in Ezra, in Nehemiah, there's no more prophecy, no more miracles. And in the book of Job, even providence is not transparent. So what's the, in very broad strokes, the Bible as a biography of God, it's a story of the disappearing God. From a very in-your-face God in, the, in Exodus to a God towards the end of the Bible, no more miracles, no more prophecy. So God that somehow grows out of the Bible. And I think the Bible is a story of growth, growth of maturity, of somehow internalizing the voice of God and, and, acquire, and obtaining independence. I think that's in the book of Esther, is a book about human independence, that we are trying to control our own destiny. That's the story of Estelle. So if you want to and see... And yet it all comes down to poor and fate at the same that's time. That's right, that's <laughs> right. Like there is like the Persian sense that everything is random and everything, and we can't control anything. To, and, and precisely then you celebrate pooling, but maybe we still have some control. Maybe we still have some agency. There's something else I love about Purim is that, um, you know, there's the famous line from the Talmud that uh, you're supposed to get drunk in Purim. <laughs> 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 and it goes like this, <laughs> A person is uh, obligated to get drunk in Purim. Ad de lo yada. Until you can't tell the difference between the between Haman and Mordechai. So I understand it the following way. You have to get drunk until you can't create an ethical judgment. Until you can't tell the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, Haman and Mordechai. So I find that so interesting that, that tradition asks people to enter an awareness that is not judgmental in Purim. Because Purim is the festival of judgment. In Purim, when you read the Megillah, there's a sense of moral clarity. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. You know, we, so it's very, the world is very neat. Good versus evil. That's the whole idea of Amalek. They're evil, we're good, we're the good side. And everything is so binary and so clear. And I think what the Talmud is saying, it's exactly then, when everything is so binary and so clear, enter an awareness where nothing is clear. We're not really sure who's good 
and who's bad anymore. Okay, that's really fascinating. And uh, I'll think about that. I think we need a lot of that today. We need a lot of that today. In a polarized world where people think that they're absolute, you know, that the other side is evil and they're absolutely good. We need some Purim. We need the paradox of Purim, that the moments of, 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 of moral clarity, you lose your clarity. The more, in the moments where you think that you're good and the other one is bad, that's the moment you enter an awareness where you can't create those judgments anymore. And I have to say, just to close out, that your book, The Wandering Jew, really does that as well because you present so many different sides of so many arguments and, and there is no clarity here. Yes, well, I, I try to present these arguments in a clear way, but I try to fall in love with every argument that I present while I present it. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Micha. Really Thank pleasure. you so much, Amanda. Chag Sameach. Gamlecha. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 